0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures in government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. After an on-again, off-again couple weeks of indictment vigil, Thursday afternoon, security around the Manhattan courthouse was abruptly beefed up, and the rumor mill shifted into overdrive. Half an hour later, we were on the long-awaited other side of history, with the sudden announcement that a Manhattan grand jury had voted out an indictment of Donald Trump, the first criminal charge against a former president in the nation's history. The indictment was sealed, preventing the fully informed analysis of D.A. Alvin Bragg's legal theory and the differences between the case against Trump, he has greenlighted now, and the one that he put the brakes on a little over a year ago. For the time being, we know that they both center around the election-eve hush-money payout to Stormy Daniels, an alleged ex-lover of the president, and both rely heavily on the testimony of Trump fixer-turned-nemesis Michael Cohen. But Bragg supposedly has fortified the indicted case with extensive corroboration of Cohen and a better-grounded legal approach. We will be able to better judge Bragg's handiwork Tuesday when the indictment is unsealed and Trump's vainglory takes the biggest hit of his lifetime as he'll be arraigned on the charges and processed like any other accused criminal. Even as the indictment had the feel of an at-last moment, it also marked a sharp pivot point into a new stage of extended legal wrangling, all wrapped around the axle of the presidential election in which one party's leading candidate is now an accused felon. Trump made his public strategy clear with extended diatribes against Bragg and, somehow, the Biden administration. And his fellow Republicans quickly fell into line, savaging an indictment they haven't seen by a prosecutor they don't know. As this bare-knuckled brawl is just beginning to play out, another standoff in Washington, D.C., this one over the debt ceiling, hurdles toward an uncertain conclusion, with the Biden administration and the House Republicans in a high-stakes game of chicken and the full faith and credit of the country caught in the balance. To analyze and foretell these historic days and hours, even as we live through them, I'm thrilled to welcome a great set of guests who have been in the fray since well before the country heard the names Michael Cohen, and Stormy Daniels. And they are Greg Sargent. Greg is an opinion columnist at the Washington Post, covering national politics since 2010. Previously, he wrote for Talking Points Memo, New York Magazine, and the New York Observer. He is also the author of the book An Uncivil War, taking back our democracy in an age of Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics. Welcome back, Greg, to Talking Feds. Thanks for having me on. Ali Vitali. Ali is the Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News, where she has covered national politics for eight years. She's worked on every major election from the campaign trail since 2016, and her first book, Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House, yet came out last year. Allie, great to have you back on Talking Feds. Thanks, my friend. And Congressman Eric Swalwell. Congressman Swalwell is the representative from California's 14th district. In Congress, he serves on the House Judiciary Committee and Homeland Security Committee, and he's been a leader on gun violence protection, among many other issues. Before coming to Congress, Congressman Swawa was a prosecutor in the Alameda County Attorney's Office for seven years and served in a number of local government roles. He is also a plaintiff in a case against Donald Trump growing out of the January 6th melee. Congressman, thank you so much for returning to Talking Feds.
1: Of course, Harry. Thanks for having me back.
0: All right. We've watched commentators try to come to grips with the event that we'd so waited for. I just want to start with an impressionistic question because it feels to me that people are flailing a bit or there's kind of a Rorschach test. What was your personal takeaway at the big news yesterday afternoon?
2: For me, someone who's been covering Trump since 2015, like two weeks after he came down the escalator and announced This is something where I was talking to my sources from that time and everyone was both shocked that it happened, but not surprised, which I think is pretty stunning just when you look at this in normal political canon that people who previously worked for this man in his first presidential campaign are not surprised now to see him making history as the first president to be indicted. I think for me and myself, it also is a commentary on just kind of where we are politically, how quickly everyone just retreated to their corners on this, Republicans so steadfastly and quickly, whether they're potential rivals or they're already his allies here on the Hill, all of them rushed to his aid. I think that's a stunning commentary on where we are politically right now, too.
3: Well, what struck me about the Republican response was, in addition to how quickly they rallied behind him two other things jumped out at me about it. One is that you would think that there's something of a non-MAGA lane among Republicans who are competing for the primary. In fact, you've seen Mike Pence willing to go after Trump on January 6th. You've seen DeSantis kind of carve out a little distance here and there. But what really struck me was that in this case, when a criminal indictment is coming down, which is unknown, the details of which are unknown to Republicans. There are no Republicans in the primary field that are really taking this opportunity to sort of put up their hand and say, no, this is not our party, even if cynically to distinguish themselves in some way and try and find a way to that 20 percent of Republican voters or whatever who are Trump skeptics or maybe even just don't want them around anymore. That was what actually almost horrified me a little bit. It was always going to go down
1: this way, Harry. This guy, for decades, had tested accountability and the rule of law. And I think he benefited from a lot of the bullying that he is accustomed to doing. He benefited from that with President Obama when Russia was interfering in our elections. And we knew it. And Donald Trump said, well, the elections are going to be rigged. And we would later learn that the Obama administration didn't call out Russia, didn't call out Trump because they didn't want to reaffirm Trump's claim that the elections were going to be rigged. Then the Mueller investigation happens and Trump is setting artificial red lines. You know, don't touch my finances. He's setting artificial timelines. You know, it's time to wrap this up. We know these investigations take months. And so they don't touch his finances. They close it much earlier than a typical money laundering like counterintelligence investigation. And and Trump wins. And so he gets in the heads of law enforcement. We saw the story about the FBI agents who did not want to go raid Mar-a-Lago because they knew what the Trump treatment would feel like. And ultimately, thankfully, the attorney general's team, their instinct and their evidence showed that he actually had documents there and he had more documents than they expected. And so the lesson here is when you actually just follow the facts and apply the law, you can get this guy. You got to do it right. And I think we're going to see more coming what i did not expect though because i said this was always going to happen i'm still a little stunned that the person second in line to the president the speaker of the house without even reading the indictment has already judged the process and that's so destructive and corrosive to our constitution and our rule of law and donald trump as a defendant deserves every protection under the constitution every due process that the rule of law should afford him and every defendant but when kevin mccarthy just takes a wrecking ball to that it really is is going to lead to chaos, I think, in this country and and create a permissive lane for people you know to question our criminal justice system and perhaps take up violence in donald trump's name
0: and that lane begins today i you know, I felt too that combination of stupefaction on the one hand, it's actually happening, but also inevitability. It's so utterly trumpian, and yeah. how could it not? happen. And a swirl of conflicting reactions that I find when you try to tease apart, they all seem valid. It's a solemn day, but it's also a kind of a celebratory day. It's also a day with so many notes of caution. Let me follow up on the political side a little bit and what you've just said about McCarthy and Greg as well. Look, they haven't seen the indictment, so it almost doesn't matter what it says. They seem committed to this kind of stance. But on the other hand, at least over the last few weeks and vis-a-vis DeSantis, you know, the strategy of supporting Trump just seems to be propelling him to larger leads or at least opening the field with DeSantis. Is there a point at which someone, just for political reasons, has to break rank and call him a criminal or at least a liability for the party?
2: Yes. I mean, look, opportunistically, right, if I were looking at the hypothetical 2024 field, it would have been a Larry Hogan had he not pulled himself out of contention, who would probably be the one going at Trump. I know that he's not officially in the conversation and we consider 2024 on the Republican side to be a two man race, which Yes, with the asterisk that I remember when this time in 2015, Jeb Bush was the person who was absolutely 100 percent without a question going to be the Republican nominee. So like we got to let time play itself out. Chris Christie is on his own sort of mea culpa tour through New Hampshire and other places where he's going at Trump. I think Pence is going to have to make a decision because he's being a little too cute by half on the I'm going to criticize him, but not criticize him, Peace. He's going to have to pick a lane because the MAGA crowd has no love for anyone who does this. We're on radio, so half assed. Like you have to be either fully in or fully out. And I think they will have to pick what that lane looks like. But what's popular right now in the Republican Party is running and filling that Trump lane. And I just, in my conversations with strategists, operatives, would be candidates, it's almost like none of them have realized that they will never out Trump Trump. Even DeSantis, he's falling in the polls because even if he does all the things that Trump does, he's not Trump. Trump still is.
1: To Ali's point, I think just politically, it's a mistake. If you want to be the nominee and you want to draw a contrast, you can't have a foot in both lanes. And to Ali's point, you can't be Trump light. I mean, have you ever tried the Jiffy light peanut butter? It tastes like shit.
0: (laughs) DeSantis, Trump light.
1: It tastes like shit. Yeah, They will figure out. That if they want the full Trump, that he's in the race, as long as Donald Trump's around, they're just going to go with Trump. And, and so I, I do think at some point, if you want to win, not just the primary, but the general, someone has to stake out the lane that Donald Trump is a three-time loser. He lost the House in 18. He lost the White House in 20, played in the midterms and lost big in the 22 midterms. And by the way, a three-time loser who's under indictment. That's the only way. That's the only shot that you have. Because otherwise, he will just chew up and spit out, as he did in 16, the best that they can bring.
0: Sort of one at a time. It might be a kamikaze mission, right? It might be someone who has to open up some kind of window. Look at Liz Cheney. Yeah. To add to all those points, I mean, think about DeSantis,
3: right? He actually did pretty recently try to carve out a little space. He played that little coy game where he floated some stuff about the Stormy Daniels allegations before backing Trump. Right.
0: And he got clobbered.
3: Right. He got clobbered and he immediately backed off. And there's like not the slightest hint of any of that in his current response. He's essentially declaring that that's all off now. That's just done. Right. He, he's not going that way. But the other thing is one thing that seems strange about Pence's position right now is it seems premised on the idea that he can kind of fix his problems with at least a sizable chunk of Trump voters over January 6th right? Otherwise, why would he not try to carve out a separate lane? Yet that just seems like a fantasy to me. He committed the ultimate betrayal of Donald Trump in the eyes of the base, right? He wouldn't help him overturn the election. I don't understand how he thinks that he can get around that, or if he thinks that, and if he doesn't, then why not take this opportunity to carve out a big space between the two of them? I mean, Pence's whole selling point is that He's a traditional conservative, a religious man. He talks about January 6th and Trump's sins in religious terms, in strongly moral terms. This seems like a pretty good opportunity to say, this guy is just terrible news for our party. We stuck with him for a long time, and he screwed us over in every which way. It's over. It's time to break with him.
0: Not to mention, he's going to have to probably... Testify in words, not simply his sort of tempered, oh, it was reckless. He's going to have to, okay, we're on radio. He's going to have to say, he called me a pussy. That's going to be quite a moment for Mike Pence. But, you know, at that point, maybe the gloves are off. Yeah, maybe. Let's take a moment on Trump himself. If you want to call this Trump 2.0, I mean, to me, he hasn't been simply defiant or pugnacious. The best term I can come up with is almost sort of messianic, this message to his base that this is your fight, I'm your salvation, I'm your retribution. I mean, on the one hand, it seems dangerous, potentially, but it's so both emotional and over the top. Can he actually maintain it when there's two, three sets of charges coming at him, that sort of ardent, you know, almost end of days feel to his presentation?
1: Well, I would just say, Harry, if you were thinking about getting on a bus or a plane to go to Manhattan, probably in the back of your mind is, well, this guy didn't have our backs after January 6th, right? Like, just kind of walked away from us privately, was appalled at like what some of these people look like. Because again, when Trump actually has to face like who his supporters are, it's not, you know, the Met Gala crowd that he likes to think he's a part of and did not pardon any of them in his remaining days in office. And so I I do think many of them are wondering, would this guy even have our back uh, if we went to rally for him? But I think, Harry, what's disturbing to me that these are not just Trump voters, my colleagues are tweeting out and saying from Elise Stefanik to others in their conference, they're saying, well, if they could do this to Donald Trump, they could do it to you. And, and I flip that. No, if they could do this to you, which we do every day, we prosecute, you know, white collar, wire same fraud cases every day, if they could do this to you. They should be able to do it to the most powerful person in the world.
0: Well put. We've made this pivot point just today where we're going to have what would normally be slow and boring pretrial proceedings. And yet every little motion, every juror choice is going to be filtered through a crazy campaign mode that is going to potentially advantage Trump. Because as of today, Bragg has to, we may see one statement on Tuesday, but otherwise you got to do your talking in court. There's a kind of vacuum there that Trump and his supporters will feel. And it's, it's a challenge on so many levels, but a social challenge if people can even absorb it and stay sort of clear headed and wait to hear the evidence. We've never really quite had a trial so braided with an election, it seems to me.
2: But isn't that the point of why he ran again? I mean, it was a big reason why he got into the race so quickly. And people in his orbit really believe, like, whether it's spin to reporters or not, they do believe that this will help him. He was able to raise a few million dollars just off the sheer prospect of being indicted. He tried in true Trumpian fashion to set his own terms of when an indictment that he didn't know was coming was coming, right? Everyone who has watched him has really seen him do the same old game plan, except that he now, I think, after January 6th, understands the weight of his words to his supporters. And I think that watching the same kind of mirror image language of warning about death and destruction now with the hindsight that we have available to us of January 6th, You cannot unlink those two things. I know that Republican leadership has tried to do that. McCarthy tried to be his own translator last week by saying, well, it's not what he meant. He was just educating people. But like those words showed action on the 6th. And it's hard not to unlink those things again. I also just have a question for you, Harry. As someone who's like the actual lawyer here, I told you this before, I skipped law school to cover the first Trump campaign. Like (laughs) to me, it's crazy that when I ask lawmakers about this, they're not refuting the substance of, yeah, maybe he paid off a porn star. That's not even up for discussion. The discussion is just like, well, statute of limitations and it's political. Like, As a lawyer, what do you think the lawyers are thinking about with that?
0: Well, what does strike me is that all the criticisms are completely substance free. So it almost goes without saying that whatever he Reveals come Tuesday, they're going to try to trash. But right, so you know, a couple points. First, this notion, oh, it's just an accounting error. I think Bragg will have to see. But look, he's had a year to reconceptualize the case. I think we're going to see it on much broader footing. That's why Pecker was the final witness. The focus is not simply the Stormy Daniels episode, but beginning with the agreement, perhaps even a conspiracy charge, with pecker and others are involved then that if and when women would come out of the woodwork we've got a strategy here a catch and kill then the execution of that through Karen McDougal here comes Stormy at the eve of the election and then even after in the oval office you know checks to Michael Cohen that are concealed because they really are cover up I mean this is the in a sense the ultimate is not the crime it's the cover up because it's really a very Trumpian scheme to deceive and to conceal from the start. What the lawyers are really looking at is what is going to be the auxiliary crime that Bragg charges to elevate a misdemeanor to a felony. I'll just say one thing. These 96 hours strike me as very tricky because I think back on the Mueller report and this is the first chance for Trump to try to shape the narrative while the prosecutors stay quiet. But if The Times is right that there are 34 counts... Maybe there's 30, maybe there's 36, but 34 is three times 11, which suggests different counts involving each of the payments. And that one left over might be a conspiracy. And that I think would put it also on sort of broader and more condign ground, not just a quick payout, but a whole very Trumpian scheme. You're a lawyer. You're a prosecutor. Actually, <laughs>
1: my colleagues didn't make a peep when Michael Cohen was indicted. Your and,
0: Republican colleagues, my
1: Republican colleagues, didn't say anything when Michael Cohen was indicted, pleaded guilty, went to jail for the payoff portion. They they weren't you know calling for death and destruction. They weren't protesting. Uh, they didn't say anything about it. So Michael Cohen essentially caught to exactly a part of what Donald Trump is going to be indicted with. But this is also an opportunity for the Republicans. They have this culture war grab bag where they can just look at, OK, Bragg is a you know a black prosecutor. Let's go into the time to Soros, time to defund the police and say, well, they're prosecuting Trump. Lindsey Graham just tweeted Donald Trump should break a window, steal something, blah, blah, blah on his way to the courthouse. Right. I mean, they're
0: really flirting with ra- maybe more than flirting with racist and anti-Semitic. Troves. Yeah,
1: they are. But I think and I hope reporters, Ali, focus on this once Donald Trump is arraigned. So he's going to be given notice of the charges and he has rights, obviously, to contest the case. But he also under the Constitution, he's going to be asked by the judge if he wants to waive time, waive his speedy trial right. Now, defendants could do that if they want to prepare for the case. But you know, this case has been kicking around for many years. I think you know, he should be asked If he waives time, meaning he doesn't demand a speedy trial within 10 days or 30 days, whatever the statute is in New York, he should be asked, well, if you're so innocent, why aren't you going to trial? Wouldn't an innocent man say, you know, wild horses couldn't keep me from being in the courtroom tomorrow, picking a jury to prove my innocence? And so if he waives time and waives his speedy trial right, I think he should be asked, well, why are you delaying this if you're so innocent?
0: It's a great example for a defendant. He's acting not just unusually, but idiotically. Everything he says can be used in a cross examination of him. But he seems so all in on a kind of I've called it messianic, maybe martyrdom approach to his base. Do you think he actually wants to go to trial here? Wants to be printed? Wants to have the mug shot? That's such a debasing point for so many, but is this, you know, for him, bring it on, that's my fuel, that's my juice with my base?
3: So I tend to be skeptical of that sort of mind reading of Trump. I think I read somewhere, I can't remember where, maybe you guys remember, someone reported that he really hated the idea of being indicted. I think what this is really more about is trying to set the terms of the debate in advance in a way that makes it much harder for Republicans to break ranks. If he can be perceived as still having a real grip on his base, you know, the stuff about the mugshot being on T-shirts and on baseball caps and buttons, I think that's sort of a way of saying in this context, red wave, you know, there's a red wave coming, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like that type of bluster where they're saying in advance, when this really hits the fan, the base is going to be really, really on his side which is really a way of saying to all these Republicans, you better not waver. You got to stick with me.
0: I think often we try to read strategy into Trump and he's just reactive yeah, and yeah. really not so sophisticated a player. But you could see this as just a whole big bet on a political strategy. And if he wins the presidency, of course, it's, if nothing else, a game changer. Although, I, you know, this is New York. There are no pardons uh, to be had here.
1: I've worked on a lot of presidential campaigns and obviously my own failing presidential campaign, but I've never been in a room where a political strategist says, you know, you know what would help us uh, and the polls would be yeah. an indictment yeah. or even both.
0: Right, exactly. Talk about a whack dog strategy and you're the dog or whatever. <laughs> Look, it's true. I don't mean to be jocular. This is part of what I mean by the conflicting sentiments, because obviously it's a solemn Moment, But I, I see today or yesterday as this sort of pivot point. Everyone was, ah, finally, ah, that's it. But we have a new normal now where Trump has two advantages. One is the duly given constitutional rights and beyond a reasonable doubt and all the things that a defendant enjoys once things have moved from charging to proving, But also, a near-information vacuum. I mean, it'll be interesting. Bragg and his folks should not be, and I think won't be, trying this in the press. So there'll be a lot of crazy, distorted, even flat-out false allegations about what's going on. And the normal refrain of, just wait until we get in the court and you'll see the evidence might seem inadequate for, you know, what could be up to a year of just rag bashing, court bashing, New York bashing, Soros bashing, that really begins to hit home with maybe not just his base, but, you know, a little more broadly if people come to doubt the righteousness of the prosecution.
3: I'd love to hear what the congressman has to say about this. I think there might be a way for Democrats to responsibly weigh in on this in a way that educates the public without prejudging the outcome in any way while also maintaining the idea that Trump is entitled to a full process and so forth. The opportunity comes in Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan's threats to go after Bragg, right? I actually interviewed Jamie Raskin about this and he said that if Jim Jordan and the weaponization committee really takes this to hearings in some way, They'll be able to connect the dots on what the charges actually mean, and they'll be able to try and draw out the degree to which House Republicans are in direct coordination with Trump's defense team. I don't know what Jim Jordan's going to do exactly. I think a lot of it's bluster and giving Trump what he wants and so forth, but it seems at least somewhat plausible that they really will push it all the way, especially with MAGA Nation demanding a fully aggressive stance by the Republican party against Bragg. So Congressman, is there an opening here to educate the public in a responsible way? Do you see those hearings unfolding somewhat like that, at least plausibly? Yes. And so they are going to try and
1: drag Bragg in. They're going to try and bring the Fulton County prosecutor in, I imagine as well, if she brings indictments. It's too rich, right? Because the name of the committee is weaponization of government, <laughs> and they yeah. they are horning their way into independent prosecutions, and they're asking both of the prosecutors essentially to commit felonies, right? Because it would be a felony for Bragg to discuss anything in a secret grand jury proceeding. So I think, like going back to what I said earlier, like how do we frame this? Well, if Donald Trump just lets these investigations hang out there, which I think he's going to do, because in his mind, this helps him remain a martyr, and functionally, if he becomes president, he can find a way to get rid of the investigations, either you know, pardoning himself on federal exposure and, and leaning on state folks or, or arguing that you cannot be in these proceedings as a sitting president. So he has every interest to make them, as I said, just kind of hang around. That's why I think on the education piece, we should just hammer home the idea that An innocent man who's being framed wouldn't delay, delay, delay. An innocent man who's being framed would want his day in court ASAP. So why doesn't Donald Trump want that trial? Why isn't he asking for it today? And I would, again, put that burden on him. He has a right, as Harry knows, to not testify. But you can comment on his right in the public realm to not call for a speedy resolution to this.
0: How does this look a few months down the line for the McCarthys and Jordans of the world, but for Trump's rhetoric as well, when it's not just a New York state, arguably yeah. less serious crime, but you know, two, three different charges have been laid at his feet. Can he maintain the same kind of martyrdom complex and can the rest of the party have the same enforced lockstep support? At some point, doesn't it start to seem like, can everybody be wrong here?
2: Yes, I think it can go a few ways, because you look at the idea that it can be a pile-on from the view of the MAGA base, that it's Fulton County and it's Manhattan, and then it's the two different probes from DOJ, from Maine Justice. There could be that view. And frankly, I've had some conservative operatives up here on the Hill call me and say like, well, doesn't that dilute the quote unquote democratic talking case that this is just all political against Trump? And the other side of it, which as I play devil's advocate with my sources all the time, I said to them, what if the other way of looking at this is just the former president did a few things in different capacities that were illegal?" And this person on the other end of the phone with me, as conservative as they come said, Yeah, I guess that is the other way of looking at it. So I don't know (laughs) which way people are gonna end up looking at this, but you kind of have an opportunity where any other kids of the 90s over here can say like, the RL Stein, choose your own ending books. That's sort of what you end up with, with Trump in this instance, is as these things pile up, how will the base decide? Because they've got a few options. I will also say though, as someone who has been out at rallies for other candidates, I did the midterms, all these other places, the CPACs of the world, as I talk to voters, you hear two schools. You hear, let's double down on Trump and protect him. But I also hear a lot of people who say, it's unfair. I don't believe he did this stuff, but I think it's political. But it's also a lot of baggage. And I'd rather us just move on and pick someone else.
0: Yeah, they might say that about Bragg. It'll be harder on some of the other cases. And the other so thing is harder in some of the other cases. I don't think he sees any jail time from New York. But if he's convicted of crimes that other people would get, 10 years in jail, it's so hard to see his having a non-custodial sentence. And at some point, does he sue for pieces or?
1: Yesterday, Ali, many of your colleagues, uh, when I was walking off the floor voting, I couldn't walk five feet without a reporter asking the same question. There was a sense that this was coming. And the question was this, as a Democrat, how frustrated are you that the first indictment is going to be porn star payoff? And my response to that was, well, if you have independent investigations in Georgia and New York and federally, and it happens to be that the New York one comes first, isn't that evidence that they're not polluting and coordinating and working against Donald Trump, that they're just taking their ordinary course? Because if this one came last, then Donald Trump would say, well, they coordinated this, they brought it together. So there is no perfect way to indict somebody exposed to so many crimes. And so the fact that this one did come first, I think, shows that these are just independent prosecutors in an independent rule of law system who have independently arrived at their own judgments on his crimes. And, and it's not going to be linear as far as like a political narrative. It's, it's just going to come when they have the evidence and when they believe they can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt.
0: And it's going to feel very different, I think, a few months down the line. All right. Let's just go to a closeout question that is probably the ultimate one here. Is there any hope that the trial or just the process can serve the social role it's designed to do of reaching a result that society overall accepts as fair?
3: I can go first there if you want. I think if anything, it's actually been sort of a pleasant surprise the degree to which, you know, I guess the middle of the country has kind of accepted a lot of these verdicts about Trump as legitimate. I mean, If you recall the entire Republican strategy with the January 6th committee, when McCarthy yanked his three picks uh, after Pelosi nixed two of them, remember that? Yeah. McCarthy's clear calculation was that if there were no Republicans, of course, Cheney and Kinsinger were on the committee, but they don't count as Republicans, right? Mm -hmm. But if there were no Republicans on the committee, Republicans could say that the process was entirely tainted, it was a witch hunt, it was partisan, and so forth and so on. And uh, All the polling that I've looked at shows that that's not what the public concluded. They saw the process as legitimate, the revelations as serious and meaningful. And so I think there is a a pretty good chance that, uh, I don't know, maybe a 55 percent majority sees this outcome as fair and legitimate. You're presuming, I guess, a conviction of some kind.
0: Not even just a process.
3: Either way, you know, if there were no conviction, if he were acquitted, I think you could easily see a 55% majority. You'd see a lot of Democrats accept that, partly because my expectation is Democratic elites would say the process has run its course. They wouldn't take the tack Republicans are taking. And right now, they'd essentially say, we got to accept the process. Virtually all of them would, I think. And that brings me to the other point, which is that a lot depends on what Republican elites do down the line. If these charges really pile up and they don't finally say that it's time to give up on this guy, or if they don't at least say the process needs to be given a chance to unspool and deliver its verdicts, then it's a little harder to get any higher than that bare majority, I think. I really hope Republicans do the right thing in that eventuality, but I'm not too confident that they will.
2: Look, I like to err on the side of being hopeful. And as the journalist, I would just say that I hope that the facts, whatever they are, and the truth ends up prevailing here. However, the justice system shakes that out. But I do think that the splintering that we're watching in the Republican Party, or maybe the lack of splintering, kind of tells us where this will go from a political perspective. And I think, look, no matter what, even in the polling that Greg's talking about after the January 6th committee, which does provide us sort of like a nice precursor example to how people react to Trump's actions being exposed, even if it's not in an official court of law, there's that 30% that you're never going to shake that make up his consistent base. But if you're talking about convincing a country writ large, not the people who turn out in every election on the Republican or Democratic side, but the people who are maybe more casual viewers, the independent minded people who are not wed politically. Yeah, I'm going to hope that, whatever the verdicts are here, people can look at this and fall back on the basic premise of small d democracy and say, we're Americans before we're anything else. And we have faith in our court systems. Yeah, I'm hopeful for that. I don't know that we've seen evidence that says I have a lot of reason to be hopeful for that, but I can still be hopeful.
1: Harry, this is headed to a jury. And it's a time for us to put our faith in our justice system because a jury, I think, is well equipped to handle this. And when I was a prosecutor, I had this judge who tried many cases in front of her. And at the end of every jury trial, and she's now a federal judge, but at the end of every jury trial, she would read a quote from William Douglas on the Supreme court. And I think it's so perfect, Harry, I'm gonna read it for you because I think this is why we will survive this. A jury reflects the attitudes and mores of the community from which it's drawn. It lives only for the day and does justice according to its limits the group of 12 plus alternates who are drawn to hear a case make a decision and then melts away it's not present the next day to be criticized it's the one governmental agency that has no ambition it's as human as the people who make it up and while it's sometimes persuaded by emotion the effects are that at times it takes the sharp edges off the law and uses conscience to soften some hardships within the law also since it is of and from the community, the jury gives the law an acceptance in a way that verdicts by judges such as myself cannot. That's where this is all going. And I think that is the perfect forum that our founders conceived to mete out justice. And if Donald Trump wants his trial, he can get it as quickly as he'd like it.
0: That's exactly it, but you know, I'm struck by Greg's 55 percent, Ali's 70 percent, and even the Douglas wise words. And I can't think of a trial. I don't mean to sound a dark note, but I guess I will. That is so inauspicious going in as likely to serve that role because it's just more of the wages of Donald Trump. But the country is polarized around lines that don't seem to depend on truth or the shared consensus about the criminal law. So I think all three of these are really wise ways of putting it. And the question won't be whether the scales fall from the eyes of the MAGA crowd, but just that it's considered sufficiently settled and set to the side. The way I think you're right, Allie, that arguments about the big lie pretty much have been settled now, except with Donald Trump. They just don't have the same kind of current purchase and that might be the best resolution one can hope it's time now for our sidebar feature in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important legal concept in the news and the topic today is class action lawsuits that permit many different lawsuits to be amalgamated into one class action and to explain how that works I'm very pleased to welcome Maz Jobrani. Maz is a prolific comedian, actor, and author. He was one of the founding fathers of the Axis of Evil comedy tours, and he has released two comedy specials of his own, Immigrant on Netflix and Pandemic Warrior on Peacock. He can also be seen in many TV shows, including Circuit Breakers, Grey's Anatomy, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Shameless and heard as a regular panelist for NPR's Wait, wait, don't tell me. Recently, he's been using his platform to amplify the voice of the Iranian people as they protest the mistreatment of women and others inside of Iran, where he was born. So I give you Maz Jobrani on class action lawsuits.
4: What are class action lawsuits? The federal courts were designed to resolve lawsuits between individual parties to redress concrete injuries. Think of a car accident, or a horse-drawn buggy accident between A and B, or a criminal prosecution in which the government sues a defendant for injury to the state. In fact, federal courts are restricted to hearing what the Constitution calls cases or controversies. In essence, disputes where one party alleges another has harmed him and the law provides a remedy. In 1966, Congress greenlighted a significant expansion of this traditional model by permitting class action lawsuits. Class actions aggregate the lawsuits of many people, typically plaintiffs, though defendant class actions are permitted. In either case, a class action is brought by a class representative on behalf of the class, which can often number in the thousands. Crucially, each class member must individually have a live case or controversy. To ensure the requirement is satisfied and for reasons of efficiency and fairness, the federal rules of civil procedure establish four basic prerequisites for class actions, which the Supreme Court has held must be stringently policed. The prerequisites are numerosity, commonality, typicality, and adequacy of representation. Numerosity asks whether aggregating individual parties is practical and necessary. It's less a matter of numbers, there's no general particular threshold, than a question of whether it's impractical to bring each lawsuit individually. For example, because the suits are spread out geographically or because the potential for individual damages is too low to incentivize an individual to bring suit. Commonality means that individual claims must involve common concrete questions of law or fact that predominate over individual differences. Typicality asks whether the claims of the class representative are typical of those in the class overall. And adequacy requires the class representative to show that her interests are sufficiently aligned with those of the other class members so that she can adequately represent them. Assuming these prerequisites are proven, the case can proceed. The class representative will notify all class members who have the choice to opt in or out of the class. The entire class will share in the eventual judgment or settlement in a manner determined by the court. Class actions create tension with the very idea of what courts do. They tend to bring them into the realm of social policy formulation as much as dispute resolution. They also can result in outsized verdicts, literally in the billions of dollars and enormous legal fees, which have made some lawmakers chafe. Notwithstanding these controversial aspects, class actions are well-established in the law, and the hesitation they engender among some courts and lawmakers come out in a strict policing of the procedural requirements. For Talking Feds, I'm Maz Jobrani. Thank you
0: very much, Maz Jobrani. Maz has a new comedy special, The Birds and the Bees, out now on YouTube. He is also currently on tour, so you can visit mazjobrani.com, M-A-Z-J-O-B-R-A-N-I.com, for a full list of cities and to purchase tickets. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate Brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
5: Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we look at three different techniques for making rose wine to see if there's truly a best way to rose. First, Rosé is a type of wine that's actually produced quite similarly to reds, but the fermentation time of the grape is reduced, giving rosé its signature pink color. The first technique for making rosé is the skin contact method, in which black-skinned grapes such as Pinot Noir are crushed but allowed to remain in contact with the juice for a short period of time. After about 6 to 48 as opposed to weeks or months for the reds, the skins are separated. This method is most frequently used in the top rosé-producing region of the world, Provence, and throughout the south of France. The second method is called Sagnier, which is the French word for bleeding. This method creates both a rosé and a red wine. Early in the maceration process, some of the pink juice created from the grape must is removed to make the rosé, while the remaining juice becomes a more concentrated red. A rosé made from this method tends to be richer and darker in both color and fruit flavor. This method is more rarely used, but it can be found more often in rosés from Spain, Napa, and Chile. The third method is blending. Contrary to what some people think, blending is not just a 50-50 pour of red and white wine. Instead, blending is where a white grape, such as Chardonnay, is blended with a red grape, and it's the most popular way to make a rosé champagne. Although popular in champagne, this method is used in still rosés as well. In fact, some winemakers in Provence choose to blend small percentages of white grape varieties into their rosés. It's not always obvious or easy to know which method was used to make a particular rosé, but the expert guides at Total Wine & More can help you navigate our wondrous selection to find a rosé that makes your day. So find what you love and love what you find, only at Total Wine & More. Cheers!
0: Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. So, I wanted to take just a few minutes to talk about something non-Trump that's very important in coming to a slow and soon to be rolling boil, and that is the debt crisis standoff. So we're approaching the point of true insolvency, not just paper insolvency. McCarthy is posturing that Biden won't be meeting with him. And he's saying, I'm incredibly concerned you're putting the economy in jeopardy. Biden's saying he won't negotiate over the debt limit itself, but is open to broader conversations. Let me just ask, what are the two sides, basic strategic outlooks?
2: I can lay this out, which is just for the Biden administration and for Democrats. And obviously the congressman can speak for his party. The goal is, raise the debt ceiling in a clean fashion, attach nothing else to it, deal with spending woes from Republicans in some kind of conversation or deal that comes after that. I think the important thing to remember as we have these conversations, and I know we're in like the non-Trump portion of this program, but there is a Trump angle here, which is that this is money that's already been spent, and that money happened to be spent in part During the four years of the Trump administration, when Republicans had the power of the purse here in Congress to help bolster things like the Trump tax cuts that they ended up running on in subsequent elections. Right. So like there's a Trump piece that's relevant. And then they consider the way that Republicans are strategizing around this, which is saying this is their opportunity in their mind to try to earn some leverage on something that has been in the past, mostly apolitical, which is just you don't want to default on our debt. We've never done that before as a country. I know an X date sounds cool, but like there is nothing cool about what that would do yeah. to the economy. Right. But at the same time, for Republicans, they see this as a pinch point and as a moment for leveraging all of their concerns about the national debt for this moment where they have control of one House of Congress. And the ability to hold up a massive thing like raising the debt ceiling in hopes of extracting some of the things that they want out of future budget dealings, which are different. Debt and budget are in this under the same umbrella, but we're talking different droplets of rain here. And I think it gets mushed together, but that shouldn't muddy the waters for people who are paying attention to this because they're different things.
0: A lot of great water metaphors there. I'm, I'm clearly I'm...
2: very aquatic today. Send me to a beach or something. <laughs>
0: Congressman, your thoughts. And of course, you're living this standoff. And this might be one where Democrats often have a kind of built in advantage. I think Ali has set the table on the strategy. You know, something's got to give, yes? How do you see it playing out?
1: Yeah, Harry, Americans are jurors, right? And my training was talking to 12 jurors and taking something complicated and making it plain. And I've urged my colleagues when we talk about this to plainly say, Republicans are seeking to dine and dash on the American economy. They ran up this tab. They're partially responsible for running up this tab. And now they're going to walk away from the bill. And and what happens when you dine and dash? Well, you're not welcome at the restaurant you did that at, but they're going to tell everyone else and you're not going to be welcome there. So America's standing, our credibility, our credit worthiness will collapse if we do that. So we pay our bills. and, And these are Donald Trump's bills, and about a third of them are. And the Biden position, as Ali laid out, is, well, if you want to negotiate about this, and I don't even think we should negotiate because we lifted it a number of times without negotiating it for Donald Trump. Right. Well, show us your budget. And Kevin McCarthy, he wants to have a meeting. With, you know, I don't know if he just wants to go over to the White House and, and sort more Starbursts, but he wants to have a meeting at the White House with no agenda. And that's not how it works. Again, going back to being a, a lawyer, Harry. When you're striking a deal with a defense attorney, you would never negotiate against yourself, right? That's the first rule in negotiations. And Biden's not going to negotiate against himself if he doesn't even know what the budget is. And and the, the problem, the reason Kevin McCarthy does not have a budget is because his own speakership is hanging by a thread. And he can't get Tony Gonzalez, who lives on 900 miles of the southern border and has very sensible thoughts on border security, to agree with Chip Roy and the Freedom Caucus folks who have completely different thoughts. And so when your margin is so thin, it's no surprise you can't find cohesion. And, and McCarthy, I don't think, is strong enough to just say, we're going to extend the debt ceiling because that's what we do. He's going to be held back by the lowest common denominator in his conference. And that's a, a scary place for all of us to be.
0: Yeah, and maybe most for Kevin McCarthy. I mean, if he can't bring sort of debt reduction with negotiated spending cuts, is his speakership in jeopardy he already agreed to terms that make it very fragile
3: well it looks to me like the only plausible way out of this right now is for Kevin McCarthy to allow a small block of House Republicans to vote with Democrats to raise the debt ceiling now if he does that I'm not sure what mechanism it would take it could be a discharge petition or something like that but The critical question then would become whether Kevin McCarthy faces a serious leadership challenge. The far right is absolutely adamant that the threat of destroying the the global economy be used as a weapon of extortion to try and force their extreme demands on the country. And it's really worth underscoring that this is a, a very far right, extreme minority position. And not only is the position itself extreme, the types of spending cuts that they want, But the tactic is also incredibly extreme and destructive. And so I don't really see, given the sort of strength of their emotional attachment to this, how they avoid subjecting McCarthy to a leadership challenge if and when he he does this.
2: Scott Perry said something that I think was so interesting, but maybe got missed in like the buzz of the hill two weeks ago, because we were at a press conference about this issue. And my question to him was like, Do you feel that you're confident in McCarthy being the person who's negotiating on behalf of you and your entire caucus in the Freedom Caucus and your entire conference writ large. And he said, yes, I'm confident. But then later on said something to the effect of, but that's why we pushed so hard during the speakership to make sure that there were things baked into this that allowed us to voice our concerns if and when we have them. And what he's talking about is the thing that we talked about a lot I think the last time I was on this program, which is the motion to vacate and this idea that there's something always swinging above McCarthy that can be any one member of his conference saying, hey, I'd like to trigger uh, effectively a vote of no confidence against you and challenge your speakership. Now, whether or not that just becomes like a melee on the floor, we can see what that looks like, but it makes it very, very hard to govern when someone can second guess any decision you make in the moment. Maybe they're not saying that threat very loudly right now, but certainly I heard it when Congressman Perry said it. And I think it's something we could potentially hear more of if the spending conversations don't go the way that they, the Freedom Caucus, want them to.
0: All right. I think we leave it here for now. It's occurring to me that our two big topics, the Trump one and the non-Trump one, are joined by a common image. I'll go poultry uh, for Ali's Aquaticness. These are two real high stakes games of chicken that are being played out. And you wonder what is going to be the next move. Can McCarthy really stay uh, silent? (sighs) Wow, so much to follow up with both of these. Let's just end with the minute we have left in our Talking Five. The question today, uh, very apropos, is just what is the first Trump criminal case to go to a jury. The unknown charges Brag filed.
2: It's Fulton County for me. It's
0: perfect. That's and she, and she did it with, with <laughs> finger pointing to ah oh, she's so television good. is
2: visual, you know?
0: <laughs> exactly. Eric. Yeah. Innocent people
1: don't delay justice. Oh. That's it.
0: I need a question from the judges if they're here. Is Mar a one word or three words? Ooh. We'll allow it. Mar-a-Lago, Smith comes from behind. All right, we are out of time. Thank you very much to Ali, Greg, and Congressman Swalwell. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube where we're posting daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Charlie Sykes about the hugely consequential Wisconsin Supreme Court election happening tomorrow. And we also now are posting PDFs of my op-eds at the LA Times that you can read if you're not already a subscriber to the Times. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Ria Cohn gilbert Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to Maz Giovrani for explaining class action lawsuits. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Litman. Talk to you later.